why are we asking customers what solutions we should go create for them, right? Our goal as innovators is to understand the problem, and then we come up with the solutions that will best address those unmet needs. This is the ERP Organizational Change Journal podcast, brought to you by Nestle & Associates, a Newport Beach, California-based ERP organizational change management firm serving the private equity industry. The ERP OCJ seeks to share expertise, insight, experience, and research, and to create effective conversation to help guide ERP organizational change to real, measurable, and verified success. And now, here's your ERP expert and host, the founder of Nestle & Associates, Dr. Jack Nestle. Hello everyone, Jack here. Today we're going to discuss the ideas, theories, and practice described in our guest's book, Jobs to be Done, Theory to Practice. Corporate culture that promotes creativity and innovation benefits both internal and external stakeholders. Leaders that inspire and encourage innovation encourage stakeholders to analyze problems from different viewpoints and that inspire employees to passionately endorse organizational goals and missions tend to be high-performing companies. As an innovation thought leader, our guest has changed the way academics and executives alike think about growth strategy, organizational performance, and product value. So in this episode, Tony is strategist, founder and CEO, inventor, author, and innovation thought leader. Tony is the pioneer of jobs to be done theory and the inventor of outcome-driven innovation or ODI, a powerful strategy and innovation process with a documented success rate that is five times the industry average. Tony has been granted 12 patents for his game-changing innovation practices, which result in products that help customers get a job done better. Through his involvement in hundreds of innovation initiatives, Tony has helped companies reinvent underperforming products, create new business models, and build and implement company-wide innovation programs. So without further ado, joining us from Pompano Beach, Florida, Tony, welcome to the show. Jack, thanks so much for the invite. I certainly appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, thank you again. We appreciate your time and uh, really looking forward to sharing out some of your insight with our listeners. Uh, but before we get started, Tony, can you tell our listeners more about yourself and, and maybe introduce yourself to our listeners, but maybe set the stage. And I really liked your IBM PC Junior story. Oh, uh, yeah. Maybe could you share that really quick? I can relive that again uh, sure. <laughs> as, as much as I try not to, but uh, and you'll hear, you'll understand why when I explain it. But yeah, my, my career uh, started at IBM in the 1980s. I worked there from 1981 into 1991. And uh, one of the first products I worked on uh, was the IBM PC Junior. And the expectation for the junior was really high. Uh, we were competing against Apple with their new home computers, and we wanted to get into the home computer space. So um, after working on the project for a year and a half, we finally got to announcement day. And the day after the product was announced, the headline in the Wall Street Journal read, the PC Junior is a flop. And the, unfortunately, it was. <laughs> Now, we didn't believe it at first, of course, and uh, about a year later, after wasting about a billion dollars, IBM pulled the product from the market. Now, uh, what really intrigued me is how did the folks at the Wall Street Journal know that the product was going to be a flop, right? They were using some set of metrics to judge its value, and clearly, the metrics we used to create it uh, weren't the same, and it really got me thinking, like, you know, wouldn't it have been nice to know what those metrics were? 
weeks ago or a year and a half ago when we started developing the product. Yeah. And if we if we knew how customers were going to measure the value of our product, we could just create a solution that met those metrics and, you know, the PC Junior's greatest things and sliced bread would have been the headlines instead. <laughs> but um but it wasn't, right? So I spent my last five or six years at IBM trying to think through a better way to innovate. What I quickly discovered is this was not a problem that was just localized to IBM. It's really shared amongst companies of all sizes all around the globe. And um, you know, at the time, there were a number of tools that were coming out, like Voice of Customer and Conjoint Analysis and QFD. And what I quickly realized is that there really was no uh, comprehensive uh, innovation practice. And it was, I guess it was around uh, 1989, 1990 timeframe. Um, it finally occurred to me, and this, this goes back to a quote that I'm pretty sure everyone in your audience has heard. It's uh, Theodore Levitt's quote, people don't want the quarter inch drill, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, they, they want the quarter inch hole. And as an engineer, it finally occurred to me that, hey, we have an option here. We don't have to go talk to customers about products. Let's go talk to them about what the process they're trying to execute or the job they're trying to get done. And I thought, if we can study what they're trying to do as a process, just like in the manufacturing process, you're always measuring and controlling uh, different variables so that you could achieve a predictable result. I thought, let's go talk to customers and see how they measure success in getting a job done. And if we can understand those metrics, we could probably create solutions that uh, get the job done better and that will win in the market. Well, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And I've spent uh, my career uh, fine-tuning this process so that it works in all different industries, all different business sizes, government agencies, and so on. So we've applied it nearly everywhere over the last 30 years. And uh, we introduced the concept to uh, Clayton Christensen back in 1999. And he wrote about it in his book, The Innovative Solution, in 2002. And that's what really popularized the concept of uh, jobs to be done as a, as a theory, uh, which is pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, people buy products to get a job done. So let's, let's study the job they're trying to get done instead of you know, talking about how to make a better drill. And uh, it proved out to be revolutionary. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating, Tony. Well, well, thank you, Tony. And um, I, I'm so excited to have you uh, with us today. And, and I really believe that your experience in innovation and some of the ideas that we'll be discussing today also have a place in large-scale ERP organizational change. And I would like to offer up your insight for contemplation, uh, I think will be valuable to our end users for sure. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, peeling the onion back here a little bit on some of these ideas that you just shared with our uh, listeners. And in fact, Tony, I think what interested me uh, a great deal about your book is that I see your process translating not only to external customers, but internal customers as well, such as in large-scale organizational change, where innovation is often the key to process change and the way organizations think. So I'm really excited to have you. Looking forward to the conversation. Likewise. Listeners, all of us here at the ERPOCJ hope you find this podcast useful as we share lessons learned, discover best practices, and explore the human element components of ERP organizational change. Please stay with us till the end. Tony will give us his actionable golden nugget of advice based on today's conversation, and I will recap today's key discoveries and offer my suggestions on how to implement what we've learned today, because our conversations here are built around the listen and learn approach, but it's when you apply what you've learned that you will begin to move the needle forward. So without further ado, let's dive in. 
Tony, I, a great deal of literature suggests that leaders possess characteristics such as strategic vision, ability to apply effective process innovation, applying effective metrics, and goal setting as the key organizational performance influences. And in your book, you share that, quote, this set me on a mission. I want to figure out a way to identify the metrics that customers use to judge the value of a newly released product early on in a product planning process. But as I read this in, in your work, Tony, I see strong parallels, as I just mentioned previously, uh, and advantages, whether it be for external customers or internal customers, or i.e. what we call our end users. So today I'd like to share with our listeners the ideas within jobs to be done, theory to practice. But I would like to encourage our listeners to think of this conversation both in terms of external and internal customers as a thought experiment. So I, I hope that makes sense, but I, I'm just encouraging because that's the way I approached it when I when I read your work uh, and it was just, it, it turned some lights on for me. Uh, so I would encourage our listeners to do the same. And Tony, you also share that your friend and colleague, uh, Clayton Christensen, who is a, for those that don't know, a professor at Harvard Business School, cited you and Stratagen in his book, which you just mentioned, called The Innovator Solution, where he popularized the idea that people hire products and get a job done. So I guess, Tony, what, I, what I'm trying to say is I really like how in your book you share insight into theory discussing why do innovation projects fail, how jobs need a framework, and then growth strategy matrices. And then you move into a discussion on how processes and outcome drive innovation, and then you move into practice sharing and becoming an ODI practitioner, which we'll get to more of that in just a moment, and then transforming the reorganization and the quote unquote, the language. So those are some ideas that I'd like to chat more on today. And so my first question is this, uh, Tony, in your book, in chapter one, you discuss, quote, why do innovation projects fail? And you discuss that often there is no agreement on what a need is, a quote unquote need is, that is all companies are out to provide the best quality products and services, but this means understanding the needs of the customers. So how do customers align and why would this be a discussion in your theory section in your book? That's a great question, Jack. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And, you know, what I find so interesting is that you know, I don't think there's any debate that product teams around the world are trying to create products that address unmet customer needs in the markets that they serve. But in the research that we've done over the years, we know that about 71% of product teams don't agree on the best way to define a market. We know that about 90% of product teams don't agree on what a customer need even is. We know that product teams over 80% of them don't agree on the best way to prioritize customer needs. We know that about 77% of product teams don't agree on the best way to segment markets. Now, think about that for a second, right? We have product teams who are trying to create solutions that address unmet needs, but instead of debating the best solutions to address the unmet needs, people are debating what market they're in, they're debating what a need is, never mind what the needs are and which needs are unmet, but what even is a need, and they're debating how to segment markets. Uh, and as a result of all this uh, misalignment around the, the fundamentals of innovation, it's really cratering the process. Of course, it has so many other symptoms uh, that result from that, but I really think that uh, the root cause of failure at innovation is this misalignment. And it results from a, a lack of uh, a common language around a process that works, 
right? And uh, I think what we bring to the table is a process that works in a language that makes uh, sense of all this. So I'll just give an example. Um, if people do indeed buy products to get a job done, and as you mentioned, Jack, whether that's an internal customer or an external customer, it's still valid. But if they buy products to get a job done, why don't we define a market as a group of people trying to get a job done? instead of defining it around a technology or a product or something that's going to change quickly over time. Now, the benefit of doing that is that you're going to have a stable focal point around which to create value because jobs, as stated, are stable over time. Uh, like parents trying to pass on life lessons to children, for example. They've been trying to do that for years, right? So if that's the group of people and the job you're trying to get done that you're targeting, then Let's define a market that way. And now, quite literally, you can go talk to those customers and define their needs. Now, again, if people are buying products to get jobs done, why don't we define a need as the metrics that people use to measure success when getting a job done? You know, and I think, Tony, you're, that whole idea, it is quite innovative in the way that you think about the tool and the, and the need and the solution. And it, it's it's quite a different way of looking at uh, things, I would say. Well, it is. You know, it's, instead yeah. of looking through the lens of the drill maker, we're looking through the lens of the hole maker. And I think that's yeah. the best way to describe yeah. that. And so as you're standing there looking through that lens, uh, you say, okay, well, clearly customers use a set of metrics to judge success when getting any job done. Now, it may be rather subconscious, but even preparing a meal, like you may say, you know, I want to minimize the likelihood of overcooking the meal or I want to minimize the likelihood of undercooking the meal, or I want to minimize the time it takes to cook the meal evenly, or so on. But there may be dozens of metrics that you're using to judge how successful you were at getting that job done. And we find this to be true in every market. And whereas customers may not know the best solutions, they certainly know what they're trying to achieve and how they measure success. So this, this goes after that notion that customers have latent needs, that they have needs they don't even know they have. Yeah. Uh, which I think is just a really debilitating myth. And you've probably heard the, you know, the way that gets started too, with um, quotes from Henry Ford saying, you know, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, people, and then people walk away from that thinking, well, yeah. customers don't know what they want. They can't articulate their needs. But what, what Henry Ford was saying is people don't know what solutions they want. You know, if I asked them what solution they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. But why are we asking customers what solutions we should go create for them, right? Our goal as innovators is to understand the problem, and then we come up with the solutions that will best address those unmet needs. So it just flips the equation on its head. Absolutely. I, I love the example. Uh, that's a great way to drive home the whole idea uh, that you discuss in your book. And Tony, I, I really like in your second chapter, you discuss the idea of frameworks in, in which to determine those needs. Can you, A, define for our listeners what you mean by a framework, and B, share the six types of customer needs that you discuss in your book? And just briefly, I think it would be helpful to provide some of that uh, insight for our listeners. Sure. You know, it took us years to really develop and fine-tune this framework. And what, what we've talked about so far is the needs of the person using the product to get a job done. And uh, that person is trying to get a core job done, like parents trying to pass on a life lesson to children, but they may also have emotional jobs that they're trying to get done, like be, be perceived as a good parent. Um, and they may also have related other jobs they're trying to get done at the same time. And so these are different types of jobs that the job executor has. But what we 
also learned over the years is that there's two other types of customers that need to be considered. Uh, one is what we call the product lifecycle support team. These are the people that uh, set up the product. Uh, they install it. They maintain it. They upgrade it. Uh, they dispose of it. They take the product through the product lifecycle. Now, of course, that may or may not be the end user, but we have to understand the needs of the product lifecycle support team because they're focused on uh, executing what we call the consumption chain jobs. Now, people aren't buying products so they can be installed and set up and maintained and disposed of, right? They're buying products to get a core job done. But if companies fail to focus on the consumption chain jobs, uh, clearly they could produce a product that's too difficult to adopt and could fail. The, uh, the third customer is the buyer. And, you know, in consumer markets, the buyer the job executor, the people supporting the product may all be the same actual person. But in many B2B applications, like in the medical space, you know, you may have a surgeon who's using the product to perform a surgical procedure, but the people supporting the product could be the nurse who sets it up. It could be the biomed that cleans the product and sterilizes it and so on. And it could be a buyer that's a part of a, a hospital buying group, for example. So we separate the buyer out and the buyer has their own set of financial jobs that they're trying to get done as well. And um, the way I like thinking about this is no matter which of those groups you talk to or whoever you talk to about understanding customer needs, uh, the needs will fall into one of those categories. So I think what we've proven over the years, it's a very complete framework that describes the, the, the market ecosystem that must be understood in order to create products that end-user customers want, that people can support, and that the buyer wants to buy. Interesting. Tony, one thing, obviously, the, the idea with an ERP is to provide a tool in which to improve process efficiencies and to do so cost-effectively in the long run. Yep. And you share in your book, you discuss differentiated strategy, dominant strategy, disruptive strategy, discrete strategy, and sustaining strategy. And I, you know, I thought about a way, you know, how to articulate this question. But now I'd like to put you on the spot, and and if you could, Tony, maybe consider these strategies internally versus externally, and how could they be applied to large scale ERP organizational change? Sure. Yeah, and everything we've talked about here could be applied uh, externally or internally, because whether they're internal or external customers, they're still. Uh, hiring products to get a job done. And we're still exactly. going to talk to them about their job. And so you bring up those different strategies. Um, the whole reason we created that framework is because the market dynamics more or less dictate the strategy. And so what I mean by that is you could have the intent of disrupting a market. And what that means is you're going to go create a product that gets the job done worse, but at a much lower price point. And this is per Clay Christensen's definition of what disruption means. And you could go create that product. But if there is no overserve segment of the market, in other words, if there's no percentage of the market that wants a, a product that gets the job done worse and at a lower price point, uh, if that segment doesn't exist, then you're going to fail in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So what we wanted to do was to lay out these different options. Um, and uh, at a high level, uh, people buy products that will help them get the job done better and or more cheaply. And so if a company wants to pursue a differentiated strategy to us, that means, hey, let's get the job done better and charge a premium price. Now, that strategy will work if there's an underserved segment in the market. 
And what we mean by that is, you know, maybe 50% of the market has 20 or 30 unmet needs. And if we go discover that segment and understand what those unmet needs are, and we focus on that group of people, we could potentially offer a solution at a higher price point that would appeal to them. And that would be an appropriate strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the ERP space, it's kind of interesting because what we often see uh, for a lot of uh, business applications is that people don't necessarily want to pay more to get the job done better. They want to get the job done better, but they want to pay less. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of their systems are manual. Uh, they're trying to take out labor costs. Uh, they're trying to reduce their expenses, do things more efficiently. So that's when a company, if they know that's what the customer's trying to do, they have to pursue a what we call a dominant strategy, and that's to get the job done better and more cheaply. Mm-hmm. So what that entails is finding that segment of 50% of the market that has 20 unmet needs and creating a solution that gets the job done better and cheaper. So this doesn't give you that flexibility of saying, hey, I'm going to go with a premium price product and charge more than everybody else uh, because they're not willing to pay more to get the job done better. And we see that quite frequently. And you've seen markets like Netflix you know, use that approach. You know, and we see yeah, that approach. Right. And it's a big play. And the reason we call it a dominant strategy is because it always wins. Yeah. Right. You know, we helped uh, Kroll on track enter the electronic evidence discovery market back in the early 2000s, and they had uh, failed in their first two attempts. And in their third attempt, uh, which we helped them, they focused on the actual customer. And I, I guess I can tell the story briefly. You know, initially they thought their customer was the IT department because they had been working with IT departments and taking data off hard drives and recovering data. That was their specialty. And they thought, well, in the electronic evidence discovery space, what legal teams want is to get data off their hard drives. So let's go work with the IT folks and get that data and deliver it to the legal team. Well, they failed twice because the customer wasn't the IT department any longer. It was actually the legal team. And they weren't trying to get data off hard drives. They were trying to find information that would support or refute a case. So once the on-track team understood the actual job the customer is trying to get done, they not only helped them get the data, but they put in uh, search techniques that allowed them to go through the data and find important information, thus allowing them to get the job done. And they did this, in, in essence, getting the job done better and more cheaply. They pursued this as a dominant strategy. Uh, it led to their success. They were in the lead in that market space for about 15 years before anyone could even catch up. So that's why we love the dominant strategy approach. And it works in every market, even if people are willing to pay more, if you can, if you're willing as a company to come up with a solution that gets the job done better and charge less than competing solutions, you win over everybody. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Do you mind, uh, Tony, can you, uh, so you touched on differentiated strategy and dominant. Can you maybe speak to the disruptive, discrete and sustaining strategies uh, briefly? Sure. So then there's the uh, disruptive strategy, and I gave a brief example of that, but a disruptive strategy is when uh, you find a segment of overserved people. So these are people who have needs, but they're already well, well satisfied beyond their level of importance, yet they're paying to have them satisfied, oversatisfied, in other words. So uh, in cases like that, you can pursue Clay Christensen's disruptive strategy, you know, offer a product mm-hmm. that gets the job done worse but at a lower price point. Now, what's interesting about that strategy is it also appeals to non-consumers. So these are people who currently aren't buying the product at all, and it could be because they can't afford it or they don't have the skills and knowledge on how to use it. 
but this simpler, lower cost product comes out. And for them, it's actually getting the job done a lot better than the solution they're using today. So it's an interesting twist on disruptive strategy. And I think it helps make sense of where Claver's going with his approach, because he talks about the appeal to non-consumers, but it appeals for two different reasons, right? In one case, people are overserved, so they want to get the job done worse and cheaper. In the other case, the non-consumers, they're looking for something that will just help them get the job done at a basic level and uh, hopefully not pay too much. Uh, then we have the discrete strategy. So this is where customers are getting the job done worse and paying more. And you would say, you know, what company in their right mind would ever pursue a strategy like that? Uh, but yet we see it quite a bit. I think we've even gotten used to it with companies like Uber and Lyft who charge a price surge. They have their surge pricing, I guess is what they call it. Yeah. And uh, we may have all experienced that. Like you come out, out of a baseball game or something like that at a stadium and you're trying to get a ride home. Uh, there's no cars around. You're waiting for a long time and they're going to charge you five times more to wait longer and not get the car that you want and get a ride home and uh, and we gladly pay it. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, paying for Wi-Fi in an airplane. Uh, yeah, really works, right, exactly. You're, you're contained, you know, you yeah. don't have many options. Yeah. So people do find ways to, you know, use that as a strategy as well. And then the last one that you mentioned, Jack, was a sustaining strategy. And many companies are very stable uh, in their markets, typically like CPG companies that have been making, you know, soaps and shampoos and toothpaste and things like that for years and years. And it's really hard to differentiate. It's hard to get the job done any better or any cheaper. So they're operating this very small zone where they're struggling to find ways to get the job done better or cheaper. But if they can, they can sustain, right? And so that becomes their strategy and their goal. And so I think that covers the five different strategies. And you can see it's all based on this simple concept that innovation is about getting a job done better and or more cheaply. And this offers you up different options. And it incorporates the thinking of like Michael Porter, who always talked about differentiated versus low cost strategy, which is equivalent to what we call differentiated and disruptive strategy. And it appeals to uh, those who focus on Blue Ocean strategy, which is really that dominant strategy. It gets the job done better and cheaper. And so I, th I think it, it helps to explain all these other different uh, approaches to innovation and how they come together under a single model. Yeah, just fascinating and interesting stuff. Tony, you, you also describe in your book what you call outcome-driven innovation or ODI. And you share that, that, quote, unique quantitative methods that enable companies to analyze markets in ways that have never before been possible, end quote. And, and in fact, you discuss this in a full chapter in your book. But can you lead our listeners through this process in general? And we'll include a link as well to your book in our show notes. But again, maybe, maybe think of this in terms of external and internal customers. Sure. So again, whether it's internal or external, it's going to be exactly the same methodology that you would use to help prioritize the needs and figure out which are unmet. And uh, what I meant by that when I put that in, in that chapter is that most quantitative market research is focused in solution space. What I mean by that is whether you're doing conjoint analysis or paired comparisons or forced choice, uh, they're all assuming that you're testing solutions and you're asking customers to make trade-offs with different solutions. Now, our belief is that it's way too soon to even be in solution space. What we're trying to do is to figure out 
of the customer's needs, which are unmet and to what degree. And this is what requires a very different approach to uh, quantitative research. And it's simple, straightforward, at a high level. What we're trying to figure out is which of these needs or outcomes, as we call them, are very important to customers, but not well satisfied. And we're saying if a need's really important and not well satisfied, then it's unmet. And if a, degree is, if a need is unmet to a great degree, that would be a great focal point to create more value. So what we do is we take those statements, those outcome statements, which I gave some examples of before, uh, and they often total 50 to 100 different statements. And we put them in a survey and we ask customers, uh, real representative customers of the population, how important each outcome is. And then given the solution that they're using today, how satisfied are they with the outcome? So with that data point, we can go figure out, for example, that uh, on a certain outcome, 90% of the population might think it's very or extremely important, yet only 20% thinks it's very or extremely satisfied. All right. Well, if that's the case, we're going to call that a highly unmet need, right? Versus another need where maybe 50% of the population thinks it's very or extremely important and 50% thinks it's it's not, Right. So what we can quickly do is to look through all the needs and figure out where people are struggling most to get the job done and where they're underserved and also where they're overserved. Mm-hmm. Now, what I mean by that is there might be a need where 90% of the population says, uh, I'm very satisfied, but only 20% says it's important, <laughs> right? So what that tells us is you're investing resources and cost in a product that's not delivering value. Right. So if you think about innovation as helping people get a job done better and more cheaply, uh, this prioritization method and this technique allows you to find opportunities to get the job done better and it helps you find opportunities to get the job done more cheaply. Yeah. And so that's that's what I mean by a, a different approach. So it's it's walking away from these techniques that are used in solution space and it opens the door to a new technique that is really designed to prioritize needs and problem space. Yeah. I, I like that, Tony. And I don't think this is a stretch at all, but let me try to share and articulate why I really like your point and this this outcome-driven uh, innovation model that you discuss. You know, one of the things we do, Nestle and Associates does, is we do a lot of ERP selections, right? And so that's the tool. The ERP system is the tool for specific need within an organization. And they're not all the same. In fact, they're all quite different. You know, they all have finance and AR and AP to a certain degree, you know, but there's over a hundred plus discrete manufacturing ERP systems or solutions out in the space. And one of the things we do is really try to understand before we even get close to the point where we are trying to gather requirements and put together an RFP, you know, maybe for an ERP vendor, this idea that you talk about in terms of how satisfied are the customers, which in our case is normally the end users, right? How satisfied are they with the current solution? Is it important and or are they, why are they not satisfied? And so we, we really try to understand uh, what it is they really need and what they're looking for versus, you know, trying to, you know, right out of the gates, focus on the drill. I don't know if that makes sense or if I'm articulating that very well, but the whole idea in that approach is that you try to prioritize based on method and technique in a way that's going to bring the greatest value to satisfy that need. 
Uh, did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, sure it does. I think yeah. that's exactly it, Jack, is that, yeah. you know, uh, in these ERP implementations, like you said, there's hundreds of solutions that get hundreds of jobs done, right? Mm-hmm. And um, your goal for successful install in application is to understand the job the customer is trying to get done in great detail, understand which of the needs or outcomes are underserved today, and where you should focus to make improvements so that they recognize value once the installation is complete. Yeah. And yeah. It, it brings some science to the equation so that you're not guessing. Yeah. And it brings a level of granularity as well. And, Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's what we really focus on with these outcome statements. They're very detailed and granular. Uh, yeah. I could talk about them a bit more. They have a special set of characteristics. They are knowable and discoverable. They're unambiguous. They're stable over time because they're tied to the job to be done, which is also stable over time. They're solution agnostic, so they're valid, independent, whatever feature or solution you eventually put into play. And with putting that criteria in place, we quite literally designed an outcome statement to be what it is. And what I find interesting is that in so many organizations, there isn't agreement on what a need is. And there isn't agreement on on how to best structure a need statement. Yeah. And this is where we spent all our time really fine tuning what those statements should look like. And at at a high level, you know, people are trying to get a job done faster, more predictably, higher output throughput. And these outcome statements define value creation along those three big dimensions. And when we start digging into a job, we're, we're talking about outcomes at a very specific level, very granular level that make them actionable and uh, quantifiable yeah and um and that's really what makes the difference uh in in some of our works we show examples of a complete set of outcome statements and it's um it's far different than you know trying to just say hey let's make it more convenient and easy to use right (laughs) that's that's a little too vague you know we want to get down to a very detailed granular functional level that uh allows innovators to be innovative and solve the problem in a new way. Yeah. And in that process, Tony, again, it's a very much a prioritized method and technique, I would say, in the way that you use your the, these outcome statements. But it's very much a creative and innovative process, right? I mean, it, it takes, and I, I would say it takes that which is, quote unquote, desirable and makes it more concrete. You know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, it's desirable that we have this or that or the other thing. But at some point, you really got to put brass tacks to that and really understand what that looks like, what that really means. Yeah. Um, and isn't that what the outcome statement provides at the end of the, the, the well, process? It does, Jack. And, you know, there's another little trick that we do that I think is interesting. You know, let's say there's 100 needs that we test in the market and we may find that 10 of them are highly underserved. What we do is we go back out to customers and we do additional qualitative research on those 10 needs and we figure out why they're underserved, what's the root cause, you know, how frequently are they happening, what are the workarounds, all these other inputs that then feed this new creativity that can take place amongst the team as they do their ideation work and conceptualize the product, you know, how they're going to solve the problem. And what we believe is, you know, if every team had this information, it's still going to be their creativity of the team that's going to dictate who has the best idea, right? Because you know, we're, we're trying to minimize time it takes to do certain things down to zero time. You know, we're trying to automate things. We, we want to minimize the likelihood that bad things happen uh, 100%, right? So they can never happen, right? So it's easy to make 
incremental progress, but how do you really eliminate some of these issues from ever occurring again so that you quite literally automate your process? You get it done instantaneously, predictably with a great result the first time. And I I think for all the ERP folks, I mean, that's, that's the holy grail, right? Is to figure out how to to get, how do you get there? Yeah. Yeah. So then you would say to our listeners that your process that we're discussing today and in your book, uh, and again, that's jobs to be done theory to practice, but this approach and this method where you talk about ODI and your, and even your various strategies and the way that you talk about your customer needs is very much applicable to the internal organization within the four walls, so to speak, in ensuring that the solution you put in place at the end of the day is the right one. Absolutely. Yeah, we've experienced uh, working on internal or projects with internal customers in, in so many different occasions. It could be an internal manufacturing department who's trying to improve their ability to you know, optimize their output through the manufacturing process. It could be the HR department who's trying to make sure they're hiring the right people. It goes on and on, right? But yeah. uh, I think McKinsey did some work a number of years back and said there's 144 uh, essential internal business processes. Uh, we've studied a good portion of them, <laughs> and yeah. uh, the same concepts hold true, right? You just your target audience is different. That's it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with that, Tony, you know, I, I know it's one thing to really understand a model, a process, or a theory, but it's often entirely another thing to execute effectively and efficiently upon that model or that process or that theory. And um, there are two things. I mean, some people have great theories and practice and models, but the practice and the way that they try to apply that in the quote unquote real world sometimes is easier said than done. But, uh, you know, and that's where I think your, your book is really just fantastic. Obviously, you talk about this, but what would you say to someone like me? You know, Jack Nelson wants to take your insight in your book and in your work and uh, take your insight and your advice and then apply that to the real world. Other than reading your book or hiring you folks, I mean, where do I start? I mean, how should I think about this in terms of making this effective within my organization? Yeah, that's a great question, Jack. You know, I think it starts with a mindset shift is what we say, because it's a very different way to think about innovation. Uh, Most companies think about innovation from a ideas first perspective. In other words, they think innovation is all about coming up with ideas and then building prototypes and testing and then putting them in front of customers and seeing how they respond and getting some inputs, which in essence are their needs, and making refinements to the product and going through this iterative process. And most most innovators, even to this day, either believe that that is a, the right innovation process or that there is no innovation process, and that's perfectly acceptable. Uh, we're coming in with a little different position. We're saying that innovation doesn't have to be this wasteful, unsustainable process that's causing tremendous amount of waste and unused time. And you can only imagine, you know, every nine out of 10 products fail. So all the effort and resources that go into putting them together, uh, it's just wasted. And uh, it doesn't have to be that way, right? Our, our view is that if you look at it through this other lens, you recognize, hey, it's possible to understand all the customer's needs up front, understand which of those needs are unmet, and then take the time to have ideas that will address those very specific unmet needs so that you know your ideas are of great value. You're not wasting time. And what this allows you to do is to conceptualize products that with a high level of confidence, you know are going to win, 
before you even start developing them. Yeah. Now, that's a mindset shift, right? That blows your mind a little bit because people say, well, that's impossible. Uh, but it's not uh, if you look at it through this lens. So, Tony, if, if I may, let me ask you, um, and, and I was hoping that's what you would say would be mindset shift. Is a part of your practice then, do you do much with organizations to help to kind of cater and plant that seed and help develop that mindset shift? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, in fact, over the past four years, we've been working on what's called My Strategy. And it's an online course designed specifically for that. You know, it has the intro, we call it the intro course. It's the mindset shift course. It takes people through the, the basics, like how should you define your market? Well, how are you defining it today? And then, you know, what are the issues with that? And then how should you define it through this lens and so on? And it kind of takes you through all the key steps so that you can experience firsthand what it's like to see your market through this lens. Yeah. And it's, it's very effective. Uh, and, and then, of course, you can go past that. And, and some group of people want to become practitioners. But I, I think the reality is, you know, not everyone in an organization has to become an ODI practitioner. We don't all have to know how to collect customer needs and do surveys and analyze data. Yeah. Um, what we need to learn is how to take that data and use it to make the right decisions. Uh, most companies that adopt this approach and build innovation capabilities, they have a team of five or 10 practitioners who do projects for you know a broad array of business units. And so what they're really doing is transitioning a company from a place where product teams don't agree on what a need is, what the needs are, or which are unmet, to a place where they're handing them this information that says, here are the needs. Here's the priority order of those needs, right? Uh, here's segments of people with different unmet needs. Now that you have that insight, go forward, take your creativity and apply it on this set of data. And that's half the problem. So now you've got everyone aligned in the same direction, right? And yeah. that that's really the transformational part of the approach. Yeah. Interesting. And, and Tony, in your practice section in your book, you discuss this idea of the value of a common language. Can you explain what you mean by that to our listeners? I sure can. Uh, you know, we mentioned up front, there's no agreement yeah. on the best way to define markets or needs or segments or so on, but it goes way beyond that. I mean, there's not even a shared definition of what innovation is. Yeah. So it, it, right. it goes on and on. So what we developed is a, and we I'm happy to make this available to your audience as well. It's a glossary of terms and uh, there might be 70 or I haven't counted them, 60, 70 different terms that all make sense from a system standpoint when defined through the same lens. So if you believe that, for example, if you believe people buy products to get a job done, well, let's define a market as a group of people trying to get a job done, right? So it's it's that kind of thing. And so it lays out, it's interesting too, because it lays out the glossary of terms, not in alphabetical order, but in the order in which you'd actually have to understand them to build the story in your head. So uh, what I often recommend is if people just read the glossary of terms, they'll understand the system. Right. Yeah. They'll understand the mindset shift that's taken place as we've defined these terms in this manner. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think it's a, a very short but quick and effective method of learning. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for sharing that. You know, I, I think that, that that's actually a pretty powerful idea in my view. And I actually think it's an idea that's not talked about enough in practice, or at least in our practice of ERP organizational change. So I appreciated that uh, in your book. You know, one of the things we do, you know, in terms of creating this common language, 
we actually have exercises where right from the onset, let's talk about the definition of success. Let's yeah. talk about what that, what that means. Um, so maybe, you know, we may do it in a little bit different ways, but I think that idea of just defining and having this common language right on the onset is incredibly important to the success of the program. Sure. Um, you often have multiple stakeholders and, you know, different, different stakeholder groups in the organization. They may have their own ideas and in, in different ways of thinking about things. And therefore, they're probably going to have different definitions of success and, and certainly different perceptions. So just that idea, I think, is a, just a pretty, uh, pretty powerful idea for practice. Agreed. All right, Tony. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been fun. I really encourage our listeners to check out your book, Jobs to be Done, Theory to Practice, and, and just really think about and reflect on some of these ideas. But Tony, my last question for you, and, and we call this our golden nugget. I love to ask all of our guests this question, but if you just think about your work and your experience and just going back to your days with the IBM project, and what would you say if you just kind of distill that down and maybe distill down your book into two or three sentences? And I know it's easier said than done, but what's the golden nugget that you would leave with our listeners today that they can take back to their practice and try to you know get some value out of that? Well, Jack, I mentioned before, we covered a, a couple of interesting things so far, but, you know, we mentioned, you know, seeing uh, the world of innovation through the lens of the hole maker, not the drill maker. I think that's really critical. But uh, what I'd like to leave the audience with is just getting started. Getting started is the hardest part. And the way to get started is to define your market through this lens. So what that entails is go to your customers and regardless of what products they're using, Ask them what job or jobs are they trying to get done, right? And that will kick off a whole new conversation that um, allows you to go deep and understand what they're trying to achieve at a different level. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Good stuff, Tony. I appreciate it. So listeners, in this episode, innovation thought leader Tony Olwick shared insights from his book, Jobs to be Done, Theory to Practice. He explained the jobs to be done theory and how it can be applied to both external and internal customers, such as in large-scale ERP organizational change. Tony shared his outcome-driven innovation process and how it enables companies to analyze insights and new ways of solving problems. And finally, he offered the advice on putting theory into practice and the importance of establishing a common language in organizations. I highly encourage our listeners to check out his book. And again, there's a link to that in our show notes. And the book, again, is Jobs to be Done, Theory to Practice. Tony, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Certainly appreciate your dedication to your practice and to the trade. Can you tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you and, and get in touch with your organization? Sure. You can contact me directly at ulwick, U-L-W-I-C-K at strategen.com, uh, or you could go at info at strategen.com. Super. Thank you. Uh, Tony, thank you again. Uh, be well. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate it as well. You bet. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the ERP OCJ podcast. This podcast is intended as a forum to study, share, and discuss ERP organizational change successes and challenges. We discuss the people, process, and technological components of ERP organizational change by drawing on knowledge from extensive research, collaborative learning, and practitioner expertise and experience. 
We are incredibly grateful to have friends, colleagues, and mentors join us in our podcast as we seek to promote, connect, and foster relationships in the ERP organizational change community and contribute to its success by bringing research and practice closer together. We want to make sure this is the most useful and insightful ERP podcast you listen to, and we'd love your help in doing so by leaving us feedback and a review. A great place to do so is at Apple Podcasts. Just click on the Listen in Apple Podcasts link, then click Ratings and Reviews, and let us know your thoughts. You can get more info about the show, including show notes and episode highlights for this and all of our episodes by visiting nestleandassociates.com and clicking the podcast option. Please join us again next week as we discuss the latest ERP organizational change research, practice, and stories. And don't forget to follow us on social media, hashtag the ERPOCJ. Thanks again for listening. Have a fantastic week.